I'm always glad when, um, when Pastor Kurt asks me to preach, especially when I've had something on my mind for a little while, and um, it's a privilege he doesn't get because I get to think about something for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I had Psalm 27 on my mind, um, and so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. Maybe you just like to listen, that's fine. If you're using the Pew Bibles there, which I recommend, uh, you'll find that on page 460, Psalm 27. I'll read the entire psalm. It says, of David, so we do assume that he wrote this. We don't know the occasion. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his, in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Pray with me again, would you please? Our Father, these words written thousands of years ago ring true to us even if our enemies look different than they looked for David. And we pray that you would make this relevant to us as we look to you and we pray that you would teach us and bring us to yourself. Exalt yourself, I pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, ever since um, Pastor Terrence came, uh, it's a pity he's not here today, um, and he sang a solo uh, at the end of his, uh, one of his sermons, there's been a lot of pressure uh, for us to do the same. <laughs> and so in the light of that, I'd like to begin, I'm sorry I didn't get the orchestral arrangement prepared, but um, here goes. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. Oh, you know it. Okay. If you're saved, okay. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of theological depth in that song, if you think about it. Um, you know, first of all, 
It affirms the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology, you know what that word means, right? Soteriology, soter means save. And it affirms the doctrine of salvation, that you can be saved. It affirms the idea that people may be saved, that not everyone is saved, right? If you're saved and you know it, it affirms the idea that it's a good thing that you should celebrate it, because I assume that's what the clapping is about. It also suggests the idea that you should know it, maybe that not everyone knows it. In fact, we can continue further the analysis of this song and saying that there are those maybe who are saved but don't know it, because I guess they should refrain from clapping. And then there are those who are not saved and know it, that they're not saved. And then there are those who are not saved, but don't know that they're not saved, and they will have no idea what to do with their hands. <laughs> and that last category gets very confusing. That's quite a huge grouping of people. So, hence the title, Soteriological Epistemology. That you knew what was going to happen once I got my PhD, right? <laughs> okay? Soteriology refers to being saved, the, the science of, or the, the theology of being saved. But epistemology is the science of knowing, how we know what we know. And so knowing that we are saved, that's all it really means. And then it's all in your hands, a, a bad pun, of course. Uh, is it in your hands? The, the state of being saved, now Presbyterians don't always speak that way, right? I mean, are you saved, brother? That, that's, we think of that as, you know, Baptists, which often get a bad name for this. Uh, fundamentalists, which is a confusing term, right? What's a fundamentalist? Are you, are you a fundamentalist? Well, if somebody asks me if I'm a fundamentalist, I demand a definition. Because fundamentalists in the early 20th century referred to defining five particular ideas that I think you and I will all agree with. And I actually add a sixth one. One is the inerrancy of Scripture. Another is the virgin birth. Another is the miracles. Another is the need and the efficacy of the atonement. Another is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then apply, the reason I add a sixth one, is the divinity of Jesus. Sometimes I think we just need to specifically spell that out. So if you say, are we a fundamentalist? Are we fundamentalist? Well, I hope we'd also, oh yes, then we are. But we also speak of fundamentalists more generally, and people speak of fundamentalists as being against culture. You know, against all kinds of um, all kinds of substances and movies and um, any kind of popular culture. And then we say, well, I don't know if I'm going to say then we're fundamentalists necessarily. So we really need to demand a definition. But the term saved is definitely a biblical term. But what's interesting is that it's used differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you noticed that? David says, you know, the Lord is my salvation. So if you ask David, are you saved, David? He'd probably look at you and say, well, the Lord has saved me. But he wouldn't mean the same thing. He wouldn't know that you meant the same thing as if you say to a fellow Christian, are you saved? Or a non-Christian, are you saved? You see the difference. When David speaks of salvation, he's thinking of the Lord has saved me again and again and again from my enemies. But you move to the New Testament and it suddenly seems to mean something different. And I don't know how that happened. Because in the Gospels, we see the term saved immediately being used in a spiritual sense. Even when Joseph 
is told that Mary is going to have a baby, and the baby should be named Jesus, Yeshua, which is the same exact name as Joshua. We just don't pronounce it right. Yeshua, which means the Lord, Yah, the Lord saves. Okay, so, and all through, especially in John's gospel, salvation saves. It's there. It's all the way through. And we understand what it means. It's talking about salvation from sins, salvation from God's wrath. We understand that. So it's not wrong to talk about salvation in that sense. David, as we, as we read about David's life, we can say, David, you are saved. But he wouldn't have expressed it that exact same way. So as we read this psalm, we say, it's very clear that David is saved. But why is that? Why is that? How can we know that? There's a lot of evidence in this psalm. And as typically we always do, yeah, I found three, three pieces of evidence that we should know as a Christian that the, the marks of the true believer that we can actually see in Psalm 27 that David evidences that you and I should evidence if we are true believers. So let's have a little test here and say, do we also show the evidence of one who is saved, someone who is a true believer? And what's one of them? One is this. If you're saved and you know it, you have a testimony. You have a testimony. And David begins right away. He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom should I fear? He's the stronghold of my life. And he goes on and he talks about what the Lord has done and is doing. This is David's testimony. He declares what the Lord has done. Somewhere in Christian, um, somewhere in Christian history, Christian lingo, the term testimony, I don't know how that happened, but it came to mean this, how I got saved. You know, this is the horrible person I was before I met Jesus. This is how I met Jesus, and now I'm happy all the day. And the worse story, the better. We love the real dramatic stories, so much so that at least on one occasion, and, and it really bothered me a lot, I heard one person get up at church and say, I was asked to give a testimony this morning, but since I was raised in a Christian home, I don't have a testimony. Bad Bad answer. What a ridiculous thing to say, isn't it? I don't have a testimony because I don't have a dramatic conversion experience to tell you about? What a ridiculous thing to say. If you are a Christian, you've got a testimony. Can you really tell me that God is not working in your life? If God's not working in your life, you're not a Christian. And if God is working in your life, then you have a testimony. Too often, testimonies are confined to that conversion experience. So if you're trained in evangelism, they say, write your testimony out. And evangelism explosion, they do that, write it on one piece of paper. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's great. But let's nev never confine the idea of a testimony to a conversion experience. So I should be able to, but I'm not going to, wander around with a microphone and say, are you a Christian? Yes, tell me your testimony. And you should be able to say, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done. This is what God is doing. At family Bible camp, do we not do that? Do we not say, tell me about a God sighting? That's a testimony. That's just a simple word. What is God doing? And so, every Christian has one. What God has done, what he continues to do, what challenges has he taken me through? 
What am I still struggling with? These are testimonies, and every Christian must have one because if God is not moving, is there any life? Every Christian has a testimony. It's a mark of the Christian. Maybe you're wrestling with God. It might be, and I expect and I hope that there are people here who are not sure that they can identify as a believer. You're not sure where you are. Well, this is probably a testimony in the making. God's working in you and bringing you to himself. And this is a testimony that's happening, that's working. God has saved us. He saves us. He will save us. This is the way the Bible uses it. Every Christian has a testimony. Secondly, if you are truly a believer, you have a very deep love for God. You can't manufacture this, of course, but you have a deep love for God. You know, there are statistics, and I actually looked them up, as to, you know, how many people believe in God, but I realized these are nonsense statistics because, you know, what does it mean to believe in God and so on? I mean, lots of people say they believe in God, so I, I just, I'm not even going to bother telling what the statistics are because they all conflict with each other. But I actually looked, a waste of time, of course, as to were there statistics out there to say how many people love God? And the reason that that would not be a very significant piece of data is because what does that even mean? I mean, human relationships, speaking of love, they're confusing enough. What does it mean to say we love God? You know, lots of people would say they love God because, well, he's created me, so I love him. Many people who'd say, I profess Jesus Christ as my Savior, and so I love him. That sounds good. You know, we love because he first loved us. But in some cases, it's simply gratitude, and that can turn into debt. I owe God because of what he has done for me. Well, that starts to turn into something other than love. In fact, there are some people that spend their lives working to pay God back, and some people think they get ahead. Now God owes me. This is not love. This is not love. And, and so you have to question that. Do I love God? There are some people who observe God's commands to the best of their ability. They're at church. They seem devoted to him because they're terrified of what happens if they don't. And there are certain branches of Christianity that really emphasize that. That's not love. That's fear. That's not love. And then there's another kind of false love that's promoted that nauseates me. And, and that's the kind that it's a growing number of so-called believers that try to use God to empower themselves, to live the best life now. So maybe you know who I'm talking about. And several authors and pastors on TV that talk about how if you would just believe in yourself and speak the right words, you've got a miracle in your mouth, and, and just talk about how you can be the best person, and it's all about me, me, me. That's not love for God. That's love for self. And yet, God is in the picture, so it sounds like really serving God. It is not serving God. It is not loving God. It is loving self. This is love for God. Verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to meditate in his temple. For many people, 
That would be the epitome of boredom. To live in the house of, you know, in David's life, the temple wasn't built yet, you know. This was just the sanctuary. This was a tent. It was a beautiful tent. But to live, oh my, that would be incredibly boring. Sure, there was some beauty to it, but wow, how boring. What about you, Christian? Do, do you long to be in God's presence? You know, we, we, we understand that if we're believers, the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we already are in God's presence. We're not talking about being in church all the time. Although, the Christian longs to worship. And the Christian loves to gather with God's people to worship because there's something about worshiping in the number that just magnifies the experience of worship. And the Christian craves that and finds a church where he or she can do that because it's important. But do you love God? Do you love God's attributes? Do you love God because he's omnipotent? That he can do all things? Do you love that God is sovereign or do you resent it? Do you love that God is holy and pure? Or do you say, I wish he wasn't so fussy. Do you love that God is holy? That he is all good? Do you enjoy talking to God? About God? Do you enjoy singing to God, even if your voice is terrible? Do you enjoy God? Do you love the sense of fellowship with God even now? And do you long to be in his presence forever? So I, I, I preached about this recently, but the idea of heaven. People have such a strange idea of heaven. Oh, it's a better place. I don't even know what that means. You know, it's easy to th think about heaven as a better place, especially when someone dies after suffering. He's in a better place. Yeah, I guess whatever that's supposed to mean. But do we long for heaven as more than just an alternative to what we're experiencing? People talk about heaven and the gold streets and the mansions and all, oh, all the food we can eat and all this wonderful stuff. But what about God? Is he even in the picture? If we long for heaven and all the things and the mansions and all these things, and we can enjoy all those things without God, then it's not heaven we want. Because... Heaven's about God. And heaven is about fellowship with God. Do we long for God? You can't create that. If it's not there, there's a problem. Christians have a deep longing and love for God, that we will see him face to face, and that's what we long for. It's an important mark of the true believer. You have a longing for God. And then thirdly. Now, this one's kind of confusing in this psalm. This one is that you have a sustaining hope. You have a sustaining hope. You have a testimony, you have a deep love for God, and then you have a sustaining hope. Now, David starts talking about, my enemies will all fall and all that. By the time you get to the end of the psalm, he doesn't sound so sure. Oh, Lord, do not turn your face away. Don't deliver me. Say, well, now, wait a minute. Has he changed his mind already? He sounded so sure at the beginning of the psalm, and by the time you get to the end of the psalm, he's like, say, oh, please. Okay. He, he doesn't sound so sure. And I thought, wow, you know, this is a real experience of somebody who knows God. Okay? Hear me, O Lord, when I cry. Do not turn your face away. You know, throughout Israel's history, they were so presumptive. You know, God had delivered them with a mighty hand out of Egypt, and they expected him to do it again and again and again. And even when the enemies came against Israel, against the walls, 
They, God will never let anybody to destroy Jerusalem. His temple is here. But he did. God allowed his holy temple to be burned to the ground. And they're like, what happened? They couldn't believe it actually happened. But God judged Israel. Many people today have the similar kind of confidence. God would never d- destroy me. I, 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 can always, I can always ask forgiveness, and even though I never intend to obey him. I can always just ask for forgiveness, but, and I can always pray, but I don't actually intend to obey him. And a lot of people live that way. That's not a believer. That's not a true believer. Many Christians expect never to have sorrow or pain or struggle because king's kids don't live that way. And God would never allow that. I, I don't see this in the Bible. I, I, don't, I don't see that that's what we are promised. We have been praying for Andrew Brunson, who's been in prison 10 months now, more than 10 months. How do we pray for him? How should we pray for him? Obviously, we pray for his release. But should we pray, Lord, I know he's going to be released. Or should we pray, in the name of Jesus, you release him now. Because people do pray that way, you know. They order God. Do we order God? We don't order God. We do not tell God what to do. He puts things in our lives, and we struggle. And the Bible tells us, you know, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I will be with you even to the end of the the age. I will be with you. I will be with you. You know the right attitude? Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are told, bow before this God. And they say, our God will rescue us from this fire. But even if he does not, we will never bow. Now, what are they saying? He will rescue us, but even if he doesn't. That's fantastic. Because they are saying, we trust in what God, we know that he he can, and they even say he will. But even if he does not. So they are willing to be rescued from the fire or through the fire. That's what our God does. God carries us through. He promises to be with us, and he may want us to go right through, but he will be there with us. He doesn't say, I'll spare you every pain. I won't let you get hurt. He doesn't promise that. He does say, I'll be with you. And so when we pray, our hope is our God is with us. I will see the Lord in the land of the living. I will, I will see the Lord on the other side. That's our promise. That is our promise. We don't order our God. He doesn't promise that we won't struggle. He doesn't promise martyrs that they won't see death, because they do, but they will see the Lord. And that's what, that's what makes this psalm so wonderful. David expresses confidence, but he also says, You know, spare me, O Lord, but I hope in the Lord, and I will see the Lord in the land of the living. We will see the Lord. That is our promise. And you know how we can have the absolute confidence? Going through this psalm again. Going through this psalm again. Verse 3. David's enemies advanced against him. When Jesus' enemies advanced against him, when the time had come, they overcame him. He was not rescued. Verse 5, Jesus, he was not hidden or sheltered, but hung publicly. He was lifted high, naked, on a cross. 
And verse 7, when he cried out from the cross, the Father did not answer him. He died alone. For he had become sin and was cursed, receiving the full wrath of God, the Father. Verse 9, God did turn his face away. God turned his face away from Jesus, the Son. And verse 10, the Father forsook him. He had to. Verse 12, Jesus' adversaries rose up. False witnesses did accuse him, and they triumphed over him. Verse 13, Jesus knew and predicted he would see the Lord in the land of the living. Do you see it? This psalm actually points to what Jesus would do, the greater son of David, so that we can go with confidence and say, I will see the Lord in the land of the living. I have a testimony. I love the Lord. And I have the hope in the Lord. God gave his son to secure the salvation of his own people. Are you of that people? Do you know that? Do you have a deep abiding love? This is the Christian triad, by the way. The testimony, faith. The love and the hope. Faith, hope, and love. The Christian triad. These are the marks of the believer. And so, he will hold us fast. So if you're saved and you know it, people, say amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your word because you have spoken it. And you spoke it through David who testified and struggled at the same time, and yet he knew, he knew that you are the rescuer ultimately. He knew he would see you. And we know the same because of our precious Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins to bring us to God. And so now, we sing a song of victory. He will hold me fast. And we sing it. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.